I'm Martin Shipton, Chief Reporter of Media Wales, and you're listening to my podcast, Martin Shipton Meets. It's Martin Shipton, and I am with Lee Waters, who's the Assembly Member for Llanelli, but also the Deputy Minister for Economy and Transport. I've known you quite a long time, Lee. Um, Tell us where you're from originally. You're from Ammonford, yeah? Yeah, the Ammon Valley. So Bryn Ammon and then Ammonford. This is my family still, still settled. How important an influence was um, that area on you, do you think? Uh, well, it's what shapes you, isn't it? Obviously. And I think I grew up with a sense of being an outsider, I think, and a sense that things weren't as good as they used to be. So my one side of my family were miners, one side of my family were farmers. And, you know, I, I that lovely old Max Boyce line of every time I cough, I have a mining souvenir. The, the old men that I grew up with all had knew more and were all sort of victims, really, of an industrial process that chewed them up and spat them out. And suddenly my, my, my grandfather uh, was, was like that. And he used to take me as a kid to the pick and shovel working men's club Every Saturday morning when I was like four or five years old and he would have three or four pints and I'd have Coke and crisps and a pie and I'd just sit there and listen to all these old men talking, which I look back now and think is quite a strange thing to do. And I, My mother was a mobile hairdresser and I was similarly going to school holidays with her and listen to all the old ladies talking. And so I sort of grew up with this, this oral tradition really, soaking all this stuff in. Uh, to, to try and answer your question... I remember feeling at a very young age, and I can't put a finger on on why or when it happened, that uh, a sense of responsibility that things could only get better if if we made things better. And I remember being told in school, doing a a piece for the Wales on Sunday when it first started, about my contemporaries and whether they were likely to stay in the valley or not once they left school. And I have interviewed them. And most of them weren't, weren't planning on staying. But in this sense, I've been told, you know, if you want to get on, you've got to get out. And I remember thinking then, and I must have been about 15, perhaps 16, uh, when I did this, that, you know, there's a self-defeating logic to this. We are never going to improve uh, if our brightest and our best and those with something about them bugger off. Uh, and I think I made a decision subconsciously certainly but, but but consciously too i think that that i wanted to stay in wales definitely and like to stay in my valley to try and make a contribution to make things better and that really has been with me instinctively ever since and there are times when i just think why have i done this you know life could have been easier and more lucrative had i chased the riches in london but 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 it's it's who i am i feel it very strongly because the extraordinary thing is I've just been reading a book about S.O. Davis, who was the MP for Merthyr. And in the 1930s, there was actually a serious proposition that Merthyr should actually be abandoned. That's right. And they should just move people out to places where there was work. Um, I mean, that's completely against the ethos today, isn't it? Well, you know, there's a logic to that, in a sense, isn't it? Because these communities only existed because primary industries were, were created then. Had it not been finding coal, you wouldn't have people there. And now the coal is gone, why are the people still there? You know, economically, there's, there's not much of an argument for it. You know, you could come up with a solution which says we need to depopulate, and some of that is happening naturally anyway. 
But I think, you know, the, the, what makes us different, and because we are all fundamentally similar, but I think what does make us different is that sense of community and, uh, and, and, and helping each other and caring for each other. And that's what ex-mining communities still have. There is definitely a sense of, of difference there. Um, and we can overplay this, um, but, but, I, but I do think, you know, that's the work that I'm doing now as a minister. It's about recognising how do we nourish and nurture these communities who have been a, a, effectively abandoned by economic forces, but people are still there. And so long as people are still there, we have a moral obligation to try and make their lives worthwhile and, 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 you know, and improve their economic standing. And, and we, there's more that we can do on that, and that's what I'm trying to work on. So when you were a young guy in the valley, were you overtly politically aware? No, no, my, my didn't, I didn't grow up in a political family at all. I can remember the mind, the strike my father was, was on strike, but we didn't really, you know, we didn't, he, wasn't, he didn't pick it. You know, he did a lot of jobs to try and provide for the family. He didn't really think the strike was a good idea, I don't think. I think he would have preferred that it would have been a ballot. So I don't come from a, sort of a militant family. My mother, I suppose, was a, a natural leader. When they, uh, my brother got into the local swimming club and she, before long, was running the swimming club and, you know, had natural leadership qualities. But that is the, in the only sense, really, I, had, I grew up in a political environment. You went to study politics? Yes, because I was always interested in what was going on. And it's back to listening to those old ladies and those old men in the pick, I think. So I was always interested in John Craven's news round and uh, current affairs. In my primary school, we used to have a current affairs quiz every so often, which I used to love. And when I had started doing history and comp, we would do current affairs and keep a newspaper diary. So I was always interested in that. I had little scrapbooks of uh, the Daily Mirror, of the Moors murderers and all this stuff. Odd, really, when you think, think back at it. And so... I had the ch- chance to study politics at A-level, and there's only three of us doing it in Avon Valley Comp at the time, and two of them dropped out. And I would do that with my tutor, who was a history teacher, great influence on me, Adrian Phillips, who was the deputy head of the school. And the way he taught me politics was, we had the politics textbook, and I would have to go and summarise each chapter on two sides of A4, and then we'd come back and have an argument about it, basically. And it was brilliant, because what it did, it forced me to confront my prejudices and half-formed ideas and justify my arguments. And that was a brilliant process for clarifying my thinking. It's very unusual at school, isn't it? It's like having a tutorial, actually, at the yeah, university. it was. I was very lucky, and, and, and I loved it. So then I had the chance to go do politics at university. Because I, I wasn't particularly good at school. I wasn't interested. I was sort of disruptive and restless and bored, really. But, but the subjects I was interested in, I was really interested in. So when I got the chance to... closer I got to A-levels, you just focus on what I liked. I, I loved that. And uh, I went, went to Aberystwyth to do politics, partly because I wasn't ready to go to a city, but also Aberystwyth at the time were running what they called a parliamentary placement scheme. So I sent, spent my last semester working in the House of Commons. So that's why I went. And then while I was there, I got the opportunity to take a year out and I worked my local MP during the 97 election and referendum. And I also managed to get an internship. Alan Williams, wasn't yeah, it? that's right, Dr. Alan Williams. Mm-hmm. And then I had an internship in, in Washington in the House of Representatives for a summer, and then came back and it was straight then into the run up to the 97 election and the devolution referendum. Uh, so that was, that was a formative experience. Incredible. I, I mean, I remember the first time I came across you was when you were working for Ron Davis, of yeah. course. And uh, how did you get that role with Ron? 
Well, again, it's one of those, you know, that old line, the harder you work, the lucky you get. I can remember uh, doing a project of my own back in my university summer holidays, it must have been 95, on Labour's devolution policy, because I was really interested in it. And I decided to write an article for my university departmental newspaper and give a talk to the Amherst Labour Party about Labour's devolution policies. Uh, Were you in the Labour Party yourself at that uh, time? Yeah, yes, I, I joined when I was 18 when I went to Aberystwyth. So I gathered all this information and synthesised it and wrote sort of a, a long essay on Labour's devolution policy. And I sort of sent that off to him, hadn't met him, and he then told me later that when people, because nothing had been done like that, so when people would write to him and ask for information, he'd send them my essay. So that's how I first sort of popped on his radar. And I met him at conferences and so on, and so spent, you know, hours at the bar with him and got on uh, well with him. And then I did a speech at the Labour conference, when would that have been? Nine, I can't remember. 97, 98 on twinning. There was a big row in the Labour Party about uh, gender uh, discrimination to promote more women candidates. And he and I were on opposite sides, and I was the Labour Students Delegate. And I gave a sort of a passionate speech in favour of twinning. And I remember, I can remember one of the lines was Westminster's dominated by grey men in grey suits and local government by old men in old suits. After that, I was going to go off to do Essex. To do, I had won a scholarship, ESRC scholarship, to go and do a master's degree at Essex with Professor Anthony King. And I was going to come back and do a PhD in Aberystwyth. And that summer, uh, I was working on the Wheels Yearbook as a summer job with Dennis Balsam. And I had a job offer from Nick Anger, who was the PPS to the, to the Welsh Office team, then one from Peter Hayne, and then one from Ron Davis. And I thought, well, I can't. I can't turn that down. So I abandoned my studies and went to work for Ron in August 1998 for his leadership campaign against Rodri Morgan. And the idea was I was going to be made a special advisor. And then three months later, he resigns in his famous moment of madness. And I'm the last one standing because everybody else who worked for him was a special advisor. So I was the only person left. And so in that huge, tumultuous, and you know, people who didn't live through it, can't remember what it, how intense it was because it was the mm. first resignation from the Blair government, and you know the tabloids were in, in were in full pack mode, and I was there, you know, I was just and it was a baptism of fire. And I look back, I can remember having the news editor of the News of the World phoning me at midnight on a Friday night, and it just you know all this stuff, and I was twenty two, and it was a character forming experience. And how did you cope with that at the time? Well. Stoically, really, uh, and I got on, and I still get on really well with Ron Davis. I've got huge respect for him. I'm, you know, fully clear-sighted on his flaws, but also appreciative of his talents and merits and what he did as well. And I got on really well. And he's, you know, he had a very good line in gallows humour. So through some very dark moments, you know, we did, we had a laugh and got through it. But actually, as I, so I did that for a year, and after a year, things unravelled in his life, uh, and I decided to to leave. But as I've got older, the more I've reflected, there's more of the damage that was done to me in that period, really. And, and it, the big impact of it, really, was to put me off politics, because I was excited about politics. You know, the, my first campaign, 97 election, you know, change of government, very exciting. We won then a devolution referendum, then getting kind of dream job, and then it all goes tits up. Uh, and then, you know, what I witnessed was, you know, he was, in that summer, he was the top of top of his form really and people would literally cross the street to get a piece of him and ask him for something and then weeks later they wouldn't have peed on him if he was on fire mm. and that was brutal 
Uh, and you know, he and Rodri Morgan had fallen out. And I, could, and I just saw at first hand, there are no friends in politics, uh, that in order to be successful in politics, you have to be single-minded in pursuit of it. You don't really have proper relations. Most people don't really have proper relationships outside of politics, and the relationships they have in politics are alliances and not friendships. And that was a bitter lesson to learn at that age. And it made me think, I don't want, I don't want to be part of this. You know, I want a rounded life. I want a family. I don't want to turn into a weirdo. Because, because you know, at some point, the music stops and you're left. And if you've got nothing else in your life but politics, you're a pretty sad soul. And certainly, you know, Ron had nothing, really, when it all, when it all stopped. And it was, you know, it, was, it was awful to see. And I didn't want to turn into that. So I ran away from politics. I went into journalism. How did, uh, how did, how did you cope with that? What did you make of journalism? Uh, well, I loved it because I was always interested in the news. I wanted to be a journalist until I realised to be a proper journalist, you had to learn shorthand. And there was no way on earth I was ever going to be able to get my head around shorthand. So I kind of went off journalism. I did lots of work experience every summer when I was 13, 14 onwards. Did a couple of weeks in the South Wales Guardian in Ammonford. So, you know, I was, I was on that path. So it was, it, was, it, it was a natural fit for me to go into journalism. And I was given the chance to go and do some freelance shifts in the BBC on Good Morning Wales, having no training or background. Extraordinary when I think of it, really. And I learned on the job. And it was sink or swim. And it was brilliant, brutal, but excellent training ground. And I did two years there. And then I went to ITV to be a TV political correspondent and then became a lobby correspondent and, and so on. So I really, really, really enjoyed it. But, but it was fun. And, but I didn't, want, I, I didn't consider it a job for a grown-up. I didn't want to be doing it when I was 40. So I, I enjoy, you know, I, particularly TV was fun, and not least because, thinking back to where I come from, and, you know, where I'm from, you're only successful if you're good at rugby, or you're on the telly. Uh, and I was crap at rugby. Uh, so I think I was just psychologically trying to, sort of, you know, give my grandmother something to be proud of by being on the telly. Uh, and then when I told my mother I was leaving journalism, she said, well... Are you, she couldn't understand it because she loved her friends seeing me on the telly and she said well, are, you, is, are you having a pay rise I said no I'm having a pay cut I'm going to work for this environmental charity and she said, I can hear the pause now and then she said um, does it come with a car I said no but I get a fold up bike and she thought I'd completely lost it <laughs> <laughs> what was it that drew you to Sustrand? while I was a journalist I'd become a school governor uh, in, uh, I didn't have, didn't have children, I saw an advert, I went on a common purpose course and it really sort of, you know, prickled my social conscience. And I saw an advert in the paper for school governors, I applied and I became governor of Barry Island Primary School. And I loved it, I learned a lot and through doing that in parallel with journalism, there were things I was doing as a volunteer that I couldn't say I was doing as a professional. So in television, even if you know, you're quite pleased with something you've done, it's literally gone as soon as you've done it, and you can't remember what you've done three months ago, let alone anybody else. Whereas as a school governor, I was going through the grind of change. I got money for, to build a garden in a school that had no green space. So things I felt, some satisfaction that I'd made a difference, and in journalism I really didn't feel... I was making a lasting difference. And that ate away at me. So uh, I wanted to run an organisation of my own. Uh, I had an you know, innate sympathy with the environmental agenda, but I'm not, a, you know, not an environmentalist, certainly not a cyclist with a capital C. I didn't own a bike. Uh, and, and I hadn't ridden since I was a teenager. So it wasn't a bike thing. Really. It was more of a worldview thing. It was a, a practical way to try and make things better 
and the chance to run an organization. The pattern is I've, I, take, I've, I take risks. I think I get bored quite quickly. And once I feel like I've got on top of something, I want to do something else. And then I chuck myself into situations where I'm out of my depth, but learn quickly. And, and it's fail fast or sink or swim. And of course, from Sustrans, you then went on to be the director of the Institute of Welsh Affairs. Yes. Big tank. But I think... You found, didn't you, that a lot of it was actually fundraising. That's what it amounted to. Not so much thinking, perhaps. All third sector organisations are about finding the money. And it's, 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 it's a tough sector to be in because you're constantly having to, to bring the cash in. And I was successful at that in Sastrans, doubled the size of the organisation, achieved, you know, did some really useful things. And the IWA was one of the few jobs I really could get excited about. I've you know, been a, a member since I was a student, huge admirer of it, and uh, I'd been involved in the 2011 devolution referendum campaign, and that has sort of reawakened my appetite for a broader policy spectrum rather than just what I was doing at Sustrans, because I felt I'd you know, done all I could do there, really. And so this job came up, and lots of people went for it, and I was excited for it. But then it's one of those situations where you get your dream job and you realise you've been sold a pup because uh, there was nothing there. You know, it, it was almost bankrupt. It was in three months of closing down, and I didn't realise any of this. The, the staff were tired. John Osmond, my predecessor, did an amazing job with Gear and Talvin Davis, and it really was a two-man effort of creating something out of nothing. But it created the mirage uh, and that's one of the problems we have in Wales, is we have a very small policy community. People aren't willing to fund it. You know, Organisations are glad it exists, but they don't want to put their money in their pockets. The London Trusts and Foundations don't fund things like this in Wales. So keeping the show on the road was a, was a real tough challenge. But And it almost, it almost killed me, <laughs> to be honest. It was a very, very tough job. But, you know, I think we turned it round. It's still there. It's doing some useful things. Uh, we did some good work, I think, there on the Constitutional Convention and on the Energy Project, which was recently uh, reported on keeping the Welsh Agenda magazine going and the Clip of Wheels website. Uh, and I think give it fresh energy, and then I handed it on and, and gave politics a go. You'll remember, I think, that um, over the years, we used to bump into you, I'm going to tease you about becoming the AM for Neath and people it. Yeah. You didn't become the AM for Neath, but you did become the AM for Clemetley. How did that all happen? Well, back to my point about being put off politics for life. This is a, you know, an itch that would come up every now and again, and I sort of put a moment bit on it and push it away because uh, I just wasn't in the right headspace for it. And again, the devolution referendum in 2011, where uh, I was you know, heavily involved, reawoken my desire that, well, it's all very well writing reports saying things aren't very good. But unless people who can make a contribution are prepared to roll their sleeves up for all the personal disadvantages of being in full-time politics, um, there are many, then we're never going to get any better. You know, talk is cheap. You know, it was that, that real sense of public service and feeling back to that Ammon Valley thing, really, of, you know, if you, want, if you want to get on, you've got to get out. And if everyone does that, it's never going to get any better. Well, you know, I was heavily invested in the devolution project and I thought I should go the next step, really. Uh, there weren't many seats that I would have been interested in standing in. Neath, you know, was, was up at the time, and I, I had a claim to standing in Neath, and people offered to help me there, but I didn't really feel a connection with Neath. Uh, and also, the thing about Hinechi is we expected to lose it. So there was not a great deal of competition for people who wanted to, to fight for it as well, being 
pragmatic about it because I'd not because of the jobs I'd had I'd not been active in the Labour Party since I worked for Ron Davis. So uh, I and because I'd moved away from where I was from, I'd lived living in Barry and working in Cardiff. I didn't really have a strong, fresh local connection, and politics has become increasingly parochial. You know, there's there's this residency test set, uh, regardless of your ability to make a contribution, really, which I think is a, a, a problem. But Kinecki was somewhere. Ammonford was in the Kinecki constituency until I was 21. You know, my mother was there. It's somewhere I felt close to, and thought, okay, I can I can I can put my back into this. I care about this place. Uh, I'll give it a go. And so it was shit or bust, really, because it was high risk when you're running the IWA to stand as a candidate, because if I'd lost and there was every expectation I was going to lose, Plyde were convinced they were going to win, then it would, it would have been tricky for me. But I put my back into it and worked really hard, and in the end, on the night when there were swings against Labour all across South Wales and we lost the Ronda, we almost lost Blenheim Gwent, we almost lost Cardiff West, there was a 5% swing to Labour uh, in Kinehi. In uh, so, you know, I was pleased about that. But this, the odd thing was, I never, even though in my head I couldn't see, because we'd worked so hard, I couldn't see how we were going to lose. I couldn't imagine winning either. I didn't want to sort of put my head there and accept it of not, of, of not winning. So, when I did win, I was kind of thinking, Christ, <laughs> what next? I hadn't, I hadn't thought through the next steps. So, having been elected, how did you decide to go about the job? Well, Catherine Thomas, who was my predecessor but one, and my neighbour at Kinehi, gave me some very good advice. Uh, and she said, look, I, she won that seat in the second assembly election, mm-hmm. we won a very small majority, under 100. And uh, it was maybe under 20, it was very small. Uh, and she said, I did everything. You know, I went everywhere. I went to an opening of an envelope. I went back and forth to Cardiff, sometimes three times in a day. And in the end, it didn't matter. It didn't count. Um, we lost heavily. And I thought, well, I'm, I'm here because of a, I don't know why, you know, because of an appetite to take a chance and because of a commitment to do it. But also, there's a degree of randomness and luck in all of this, you know, for sure. And there can be no guarantee that I'll win, a, I'll win again. So let's not waste time trimming your your sail just to what people think you, what you people what you think people want to hear i can remember when i was a journalist having lunch with peter hayne when he was the europe minister and he was arguing against a, con- a referendum on the constitutional convention that they would do on the future of europe and blair at the time who was the prime minister was against the referendum and peter hayne dutifully was going out making the argument against and the daily mail was running this campaign in favor and I can remember having this lunch and saying, well, I, say, you know, I think there is a pro-European case for a referendum, which, you know, look back now, I think a curious argument to make. And he was sort of saying, well, this is, you know, this is indulgent. You know, this is, this is a job I've got. And then all of a sudden, Blair changed his mind on the back of this Daily Mail campaign. And Peter Hayne was left high and dry, having spent all these months arguing this position, which has then been undercut. And I thought, well, if I do ever go in politics, I want to argue what I believe, rather than what I think is the line to take. So, and also, I, th- I do think, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a student of American political history. And you look at, the, you know, the founding fathers of America, American democracy, fascinating bunch of people. But they all, uh, they all took a very high-risk position at that time. We said quixotic views, really, in arguing for a vision of a future. Uh, and I thought, well, in, in politics, the way modern politics has worked, not enough people make an argument 
for, for a different way of doing it. Because in modern politics, we're more concerned about winning the next election rather we are spending the mandate we've got for this one. You know, and I thought, well, I've got a mandate for five years. I can't be sure I'm going to get more than that. So let's use that five years to make an argument for a different way of doing things. So one of the first things I did was make an argument on the M4, which clearly I was in a minority position in my party. My first minister was strongly opposed to me. And by any common strategy, you know, new backbenchers, keep the head down, say the right things, uh, hope to get a job. And I thought, well, bugger that for a game of soldiers. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to push this and there's a risk to it, but I'm, I'm, I'm happy with that approach. Because you were very convinced that the M4 uh, did not need a relief road around the M4. I think if we keep on doing the same thing, we're going to get the same outcomes. And I, you know, climate change is one of the issues that's driven me into politics. And I think climate change presents huge political challenges to us because it involves putting the long term ahead of the short term. And that is very difficult politics. Um, and I thought the M4 was a classic example of we keep kicking the can down to the road. You know, we keep producing strategies saying what we're going to do in 2050 whilst committing to doing projects that are going to make things worse in the next 10 years. And unless people are prepared to confront that and have the courage to do it, then this is just nonsense. So I, I saw the M4 as a test case, really. And it was all very well passing Future Generations Acts. But if you're not prepared to confront the hard politics uh, and face down uh, some of that, then what's the point? So that was my position on the M4, really. I understand it's controversial. I can understand people who don't agree with me. But I'm confident of my arguments on it. And I think I'm, conf- I'm optimistic that the Burns Commission we now have is going to come at this from a different point of view rather than this engineering-led solution we have to just keep on building more and more roads which keep then filling up with traffic. It doesn't work as a solution to congestion and it is not a solution that it withstands the tests we've set ourselves for tackling climate change. So, end of 2018, new First Minister, you become a minister. What task were you given when you were appointed to the deputy minister's role? Well, first of all, I was surprised. I wasn't, I wasn't expecting it because I sort of, you know, looked at the numbers and didn't think there was much wiggle room for, for many changes to the government. So I certainly didn't, you know, I helped a lot in the leadership campaign for Mark Drakeford, but I didn't do it on under any expectation that I'd get anything in return. I did it because I thought Mark Drakeford was somebody who represented policy change and had courage of his convictions to do things differently, and I wanted a First Minister I could be proud of, and that's why I wanted to support him, uh, and I'm glad, glad I've done so. And, he, and I thought, you know, in this of the pub games you have sometimes, well, if you are going to get a job, what job will you get? And I thought, well, there's no way, no way they'd ever let me anywhere near economy and transport, because I've you know, taken a, a, a contrary view on a number of issues. Uh, so I was very surprised when I went into his room and he handed me a piece of paper which had economy and transport on it. And I thought, I just took me a little, you know, 30 seconds to get my thoughts in order because I was very surprised. Uh, and he said, well, I know, I want you and Ken to go away and decide between you what the division of responsibilities are uh, and come back to me with how, how you think you want to handle it. But in, you know, in his leadership campaign, I had made the case for the foundational economy being included in his manifesto and uh, active travel and so on, uh, and digital. Uh, so I was very lucky to be given the ministerial responsibility for things that I have a passion for and interest in and developed some knowledge about. So, so my four priority areas really are, as well as having a general you know, uh, understudy role, 
is the traditional economy, uh, active travel, artificial intelligence and digitization. And I also have a cross-cutting role in the government for strategic communications to try and sharpen up the government's act in telling its own story. So those are the four things that I, that I dedicate my energies to, really. In terms of the foundational economy, of course, um, it's quite an interesting concept, isn't it? Because very often there has been a perhaps artificial and simplistic uh, opposition put forward between the, the private sector and the public sector. As if private sector is good and public sector is bad. And that you do get people who say too much attention is paid to the public sector and not enough attention is paid to the private sector. And that, um, as it were, the two are in opposition to each other. With a foundational economy, I think the fundamental basis of it is, as I understand it, that there has to be a recognition that... Things that are done, not necessarily in the public sector, but things which are done for public good, the general social infrastructure that we have is the foundational economy. And that without that, without that that base, the private sector couldn't function anyway. So it's the, the basis of everything. It is the foundation of everything. Is that essentially it? Yeah, it is. I think it's trying to take a more sophisticated understanding of the way the real economy works and, and an acceptance that there's not just one economy at play, there are multiple economies at play. Uh, and inevitably, economic policy has focused on trying to address our historic underperformance. You know, the Welsh economy has been in decline for 100 years. Devolution was sold, arguably oversold, uh, as being an economic powerhouse 20 years ago. And we've struggled really to fulfil the, pro- the promise and potential of that. Now, clearly, over 20 years, we have achieved significant things on the, on the economy of Wales. You know, there are 300,000 more jobs existing now in Wales than there were 20 uh, years ago. Uh, we've halved the proportion of working age people with no qualifications. And our economic inactivity levels are now comparable to the UK average. Now, that's... If we'd have said 20 years ago we could have achieved those things, you know, we'd have bitten our hands off to achieve it. So we have achieved a lot. But I think we need to recognise that... Whilst economic development has devolved to the Assembly, the economy was not. The economy remains a UK responsibility, and across the UK we have uneven development. We have an overheating London in the South East, and we have the rest, as we've seen from the recent general election and referendum, who have been neglected. And the, and the things that we focus on as a macroeconomic policy about sorting a productivity gap, wealth gap with, with England, uh, encourage quick fixes. So we try and import innovation and productivity leaps through inward investment. We look at uh, the high tech, the shiny, and the new, so we can so we can shortcut historic trends. And actually, I think what the foundational economy is saying is the economy is much more complicated than that. And actually, there are large parts of our society that are going to be left behind by that approach. And certainly, you know, back to the Amman Valley and the Kanahi, where I'm from, those communities are going to struggle to bring in a Japanese car-making factory, especially with the way we're going on uh, disaligning over Brexit with with European standards. But there's stuff there because there are people there. 
back to what we were saying earlier. And how do we sweat that asset? How do we make those bits of economic activity work better for the people that are there? And so the foundational economy, or the everyday economy, uh, it's an international movement in cities and regions. Wales is the first country to adopt it at a national level. And it's saying food, energy, care, construction, these things exist in every town across the country. And we are spending public money uh, through private companies and through the public sector, but we're not capturing that wealth locally enough. It's leaking out. And we look at, for example, Preston Council, roughly the size of Swansea, and they are a borough council, so very modest powers, have shown through an active leadership uh, what you can do. And they've got public spending in the local economy up from 4% to 18%, within a matter of a year, within existing European rules, through a can-do a can-do attitude. Now, the, the frustrating thing for Wales is we've been ahead of Preston on many things in this area. So we've, we've done some really good stuff in this. You're thinking housing of the can-do toolkit 10 years ago. But we've let that leadership role atrophy because we've piloted something and then we haven't followed through with it. And I think what the foundational economy approach is about is how do we hardwire in this... How do we take the example of Preston? How do we scale it up across Wales? And how, how do we focus on those mundane, everyday bits of the economy, as well as the, the fast-growing others bits that we also need to do? You know, we don't have the luxury of taking a single approach to this. So this is not saying everything the Welsh Government has done or is doing should be abandoned. Of course it's not saying that. It's also saying, but we also need a parallel strategy for the bits of the economy that haven't been penetrated in the same way uh, over the last 20 years. And that's what we're trying to do through this foundational approach, is nurturing the, the everyday foundations of our economy. Now, you've been on a mission to explain for quite a while, um, Lee. Of course, last summer, uh, I was present uh, at a lunch in the Clink restaurant at Cardiff Prison when you gave a talk to um, people there uh, from the Wales Cooperative Movement. And during the course of that talk, you said quite controversially that for... 20 years we haven't known what we've been doing with the economy. Do you regret having made that particular comment and what did you mean by it and do you think you should have phrased it differently or or do you stand by it? Yeah, I absolutely should have phrased it differently but you know in the context of what I was saying and how I said it, it made sense and the piece you wrote overall was a fair account of that but obviously those phrases I used which were flippant uh, were possibly being taken out of context and beaten me about the head for it. So, you know, you live and learn, don't you? you know, and, and when you take risks in politics, there's a danger that you fall flat on your face. And I certainly did and learned the lesson from that. But the fundamental point I was trying to make, I think, stands. And what I was trying to say there is, you know, we don't have a blueprint for the economy, which means we have a, a five-year plan. You know, you look at Brexit, you look at automation, where the Bank of England is saying that 700,000 jobs in Wales over the next 20 years are going to be affected. The idea that we know what we're doing in the sense that we have a worked-out full blueprint for fixing things is a fantasy. And the more we sort of go along with this idea, the more danger we are of, of, of doing what we've always done. And what I was trying to say 
is that you know we are the Basques have a more I said we're making it up as we go along the Basques have a more elegant way they're saying we're laying the road as we go but the whole point of this experimental approach which is what the foundational economy is is to, is to say you know, we, 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 we have not successfully addressed all parts of the economy and we don't fully know how to do it so we're going to have to take a different approach where we experiment and with that comes the risk that we fail but we have to confront that you know we we are going to fail in some of it but that's okay so long as we learn so the 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 event that we are at this morning which is bringing together some of the challenge funds we've had a four and a half million pound challenge fund for the foundational economy experimenting with different projects and we're bringing them together so they can cross-pollinate that's that's the approach i was talking about i didn't express it the way i should have done but the the point i was making stands is let's not pretend that we can go forward with certainty about the, how the economy is going to work, because even under normal circumstances that didn't work, and with the headwinds we're facing, it's certainly not going to work. And we can't just have pilot projects, we've got to mainstream them, and we have to be willing to take risks. Give an example of the kind of project that you're backing, which you think could be transformational. Well, first of all, I don't think any projects can be transformational. Okay, and this is, I think, where politics has gets it wrong, and this is where I think we overpromised increasing devolution was going to be an economic powerhouse. Given the challenges that the peripheral economy like ours faces, you're not going to have a magic bullet. And the, the allure of politics is to excite people and to get people, bring people along with you on the journey. You have to raise uh, expectations and conjure an image of a mighty state. So this idea of transforming, I think, is nonsense. I don't think we can transform uh, just like that. I think we can make things better, and I think we absolutely can make things better, and we should make things better, and that's what I'm focusing on. So there are projects, I think, and, and you know, we've got 52 of them, and I don't know which ones are going to work or which ones aren't going to work. That's precisely the point. Um, and we're going to have to feel that way, and we're going to have to very quickly scale up the ones that do work when they show signs of encouragement. But one, for example, I like in my own patch in Carmarthenshire, where the Public Service Board has come up with a project to get local food on local plates. So they were telling me, apparently, the best place to grow carrots in all of Britain is North Carmarthenshire. But North you know, Carmarthenshire schools and hospitals are not serving Carmarthenshire carrots. And because of the way procurement works and because of the, our whole food system, which is broken, uh, that isn't the way we do it. So this, I think, is a potential, if we can crack this, to relocalise our food supply, so reduce the supply change, improve the quality, support the local ecosystem, and increase, increase the, the healthy content of the food for, for local children and, and hospital patients, we can tick lots of boxes there. And if that works in Carmarthenshire, why can't it work in Flintshire and in Ceredigion and in Monmouthshire? So that's the sort of approach to give one example, but there isn't just one approach here. We need multiple approaches and we need to learn and, and, and cross-pollinate. And, and that's bloody hard. That's bloody hard and it may not work, but let's try it. Just finally, a few thoughts on the future of the Labour Party. How does it make a comeback? Well... I think by being honest about the, the scale of the challenge that we face, uh, I think there is a profound uh, challenge facing the Labour Party in the nature of our vote and who our voters are and their priorities. Uh, you know, for a long time, the Labour Party has pulled off a coalition uh, of, sort of uh, social conservatives and social progressives, and I think that coalition is unravelling, and, and that is hard. But the need for the Labour Party, you know, 
exists more than ever. You know, Harold Wilson famously said the Labour Party is a moral crusade or it is nothing. Uh, and I profoundly believe that. Uh, uh, but we've, but I also think people are fed up with politics and politicians. Uh, and although I got in trouble for saying flippant and clumsy things, I do think there is an appetite for people who are straight and who uh, confront difficult realities. And but that's a risk. That's a risk, and it can go both ways. But back to your question of why am I in politics and the attitude I took. You know, what is the point in doing this if we are not prepared to take risks? You know, it is in many ways, personally, a miserable lifestyle with a huge impact on your family. Uh, but I have a burning passion that things don't need to be like this. Wales can be better. My communities can be better. They'll only be better if we make them better. We have a person. All of us have a personal responsibility to make a contribution to that. And that involves being honest with each other, but being willing to engage in an argument. And not everyone's going to agree with you. And I do this on my own personal Facebook page with, with people in Timahi. You know, I get involved in discussions. And lots of people don't agree with me, lots of things. But, but they give me credit for being willing to take part in an argument. And I, and I think in, if, all, you know, if all, they're all bets are off in terms of what's going to happen with the Labour Party and what, you know, post-Brexit, where we go as a society, I think being honest and straightforward and being in politics because you believe in things and are prepared to make an argument for it isn't a bad start. So I think the Labour Party should probably start there. Thank you very much indeed. Thanks for listening to my podcast, Martin Shipton Meets. We'll be back for more next week. Thank you.